Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back. We are uh, in the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 16, about halfway through the chapter. And we're going to go ahead and pick up the narrative today at verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. And then we'll come back and take a look at things in closer detail. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them out into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We are in a study of the second of Paul's missionary journeys. We said that after his first missionary journey and after the first church council, Paul had decided to set off on a second missionary journey. But he and Barnabas, his traveling companion on that first journey, had a disagreement, a difference of opinion over one of their traveling companions, John Mark. And we're told that the dispute was so sharp between these two great men that they parted company. And Barnabas took John Mark, who was his nephew, and they traveled down the coast and went over to the Isle of Cyprus, where they had been on that first missionary journey, where John Mark, incidentally, had deserted them, and as far as we can tell, had a very productive ministry in the years to come there. Paul, on the other hand, took another member of the church there in Antioch, Silas, and they traveled up, they went back through what is now modern-day Turkey, making their way to those churches that they had established on the first missionary journey. And it was there in Lystra that they picked up another member of the traveling party, that was Timothy, and took him along, a young convert whose mother was a Jewish and a believer, and whose father was a Greek and an unbeliever. And Paul had Timothy circumcised because they were going to be going through Jewish territory and did not want to present any kind of a stumbling block to the gospel mission. And they traveled along, and at some point, we're told, they also picked up Luke, because Luke speaks in terms of we and us as we get on through this account. So as far as we can tell, at least, there are four of them now traveling. It had been Paul's intention to visit those churches, as I said, that he'd already seen on his first missionary journey, that he had helped to establish with Barnabas. So presumably they were going to go through Derby and Lystra and places like that and Iconium. And then it was probably Paul's intention to press on toward the west and come to Ephesus. Now eventually he would come to Ephesus, but not at this point in his journey. Because we're told he was prevented from going to Ephesus. The Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. Now we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it was a, a sense that Paul had. Maybe it was opposition that was arising. But whatever it was... He regarded it as a closed door, and so he didn't go to Ephesus, at least not at this point. Then Paul thought that perhaps he would travel to the north and perhaps double back to the east through the region of Bithynia, but we're told the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing that as well. So what could Paul do? Well, the only thing that Paul could do was to press on through these two forbidden, between these two forbidden areas until he arrived at the coast, 
near Troas. And we said last week that what that means is that when God guides us, we're always looking for open doors. Lord, open a door or open a window to us. But we said that sometimes God leads through closed doors. And at least for the first part of this missionary journey, that's the way God had led the Apostle Paul, by closing doors. It had been Paul's intention to go to Ephesus. Paul had his agenda. Paul had his plan, but God closed that door. Then Paul thought, well, I've got another bright idea. I'll go to the north, double back, go through Bithynia, reach that area of the old ethnic Galatia. And we're told that God closed that door as well. Sometimes God does that in our lives, you know. He guides us in such a way that he closes doors so that we arrive where he wants us to be, not where we would choose to be. And when Paul arrived there at the coast at Troas, not where he expected to be, it was then that God guided him in a more direct way rather than in an indirect way. We're told that he had a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come on over and help us. And we're told at that point, Paul and his traveling companions crossed the Hellespont, they left Asia, and they ventured into Europe. And as far as we know, this was the first proclamation of the gospel in Europe. And it would be this work in Europe that would forever transform the world. Literally, as we're going to see, this is one of the charges brought against Paul and his companions. Paul would turn the world upside down. Down. It's a remarkable story, and uh, it begins, of course, with the conversion of Lydia. Somebody has said that sometimes the best man for a job is a woman. And it's interesting to note that Paul has a vision there when he's at the coast, and the vision is of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. But when you look at this portion of Acts chapter 16, once Paul passes into Europe, the very first convert is not a man. It's interesting to note that the first convert, in fact, we're going to find that the first two converts on the European continent were women. Now, one was this woman, Lydia. Let's look at verse 11 and following real quick again. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now I want you to just put in the back of your mind the fact that this was a leading city. It's, it's important to note that Paul is visiting cities, and we're going to come back to this when we get to Acts chapter 17. But I want you to notice that he is targeting one of the leading cities. And indeed it was. It was a trade route, or at least it was along one of the major trade routes through Macedonia. It wasn't nearly as important as Corinth, which was a great port city on the Isthmus, and everything went east and west through Corinth, but it nevertheless was one of the major cities, indeed, Luke says, the leading city in the district of Macedonia, the Roman province. And furthermore, we're told that it was a Roman colony. What does that mean? It means that Philippi had been settled by former soldiers of the Roman army. And so this was a particularly Roman city. Now, of course, all of this was the Roman Empire. There's no doubt about that. But every city had its own sort of flavor. And this particular city was very Roman in its outlook. Because this was such a vast empire, there were, there were portions of the Roman Empire that were not necessarily Roman in character. 
Jerusalem, for instance, was by no means Roman in character. The Jews absolutely despised the fact that they were subjects of the Roman Empire and Caesar. And so Jerusalem was by no means Roman in character, but Philippi was. These former soldiers who had served in the imperial guard and so forth were very proud of their Roman heritage. They took great pride in Roman citizenship. Not everybody in the ancient world, just because you were a subject of the Roman Empire, was a citizen of Rome. If you were a citizen of Rome, there were certain rights and privileges that were yours that nobody else had. Everybody was a subject of Caesar, but a few people were citizens. That was the case of the citizens of Philippi. So this was a Roman colony. And we're told that on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside, where they supposed there was a place of prayer. Now you'll notice this is a little different from what had happened in other places. Normally when Paul went into a community, the first place that he went was where? The synagogue, particularly on the Sabbath. But here... He goes down to the riverside on the Sabbath, supposing that there would be a place of prayer. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us at the very least that there probably was not a synagogue in Philippi at that time. Now, mind you, all that is required in the first century for a synagogue to exist were three Jewish men. So there must have been a very small, almost negligible Jewish contingent that lived there in Philippi. And that's not surprising. Why? Because this was such a Roman citizen city. They took great pride in that. And uh, Jews would have been very uncomfortable in that kind of a setting. And we're going to see that that is actually used against Paul and his companions. But at any rate, they go down to the river, and there they encounter this woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatira. She's a seller of purple goods, and we're told she was a worshiper of God. Presumably, she was Jewish. And we're told that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, she and her whole household as well, she urged us to come and to her house and stay. So you have this first conversion here on the European continent after Paul has this vision. And perhaps it was the case that the man from Macedonia in the end turned out to be a woman, Lydia. Do I have an outline? Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> but I hadn't gotten to the outline yet, but here we are. That was just the backstory, the background. Now we're going to pick up the rest of the story. Paul evidently spent some time in Philippi uh, encouraging Lydia and the members of her household and perhaps others who were open to the message of the gospel. And we're told that one day as they were venturing toward this place of prayer down by the river, as the old song says, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That's what the text says. Anybody else have anything else in their translation besides spirit of divination? A spirit by which she predicted the future. Anything else? A spirit of evil, right? Well, it's interesting. Those are all fine translations, but that's not what the Greek says. If you go back and read the Greek... It's very interesting what the Greek says. Now, the reason it's translated as a spirit of evil or a spirit by which he foretold the future is because the Greek probably wouldn't mean a great deal to people reading this in the 21st century. 
But the original Greek says, as they were going to the house of prayer, the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of Pythona. The spirit of the python. The spirit of the snake. A python, of course, is a very particular kind of snake. Now, in the first century world, and not far, incidentally, from Philippi, there was a temple to the god Apollo. And Apollo was one of the ancient deities who was associated with the snake. That was his symbol. There are lots of stories that, uh, different stories about Apollo and how he related to the snake. Some say that he killed a great snake. And uh, others have suggested that no, he had, the snake was his symbol and he spoke through the snake or he turned himself into a snake. Perhaps you've heard of the Pythian Apollo. Well, there was a temple not far from Philippi, this Roman province that was dedicated to the Pythian Apollo. So the belief was that this young girl was not just possessed of a special power or even a demon. The ancients believed, at least the Philippians believed, that she was possessed of the spirit of this ancient god, this pagan deity. And it was through the power of this ancient deity that she was able to foretell the future. Now, there's something else here in the Greek that's interesting. Uh, the words that are translated fortune-telling. In the Greek, the term is manic which implies that probably what happened here was that this girl went into some sort of ecstatic trance. She began to exhibit erratic behavior, and then at some point this demon, and I think demon's probably a better word, we know that there were no pagan deities in those days, but they believed that this was the god of Apollo, or the god Apollo. This pagan deity or this demonic spirit would speak through this girl and she would be able to foretell the future. Now, we don't always take that sort of thing very seriously. Now, we all know that when the new year comes around, there's always these horoscopes, there's always these stories that appear on the front of the National Enquirer, whatever it is, Gene Dixon or whoever it is, you know, or Nostradamus foretold this centuries before, and we see that sort of thing all the time. But very few of us actually take that sort of thing seriously. But you need to understand that in the ancient world, they did take that sort of thing seriously. And I just want to say that as Christians, we ought not to discount it completely. You know, one of the problems of living in a post-enlightenment culture is that we fail to take seriously the supernatural. And the Bible is very clear. God exists, but the Bible is also clear there is a devil. There is a demonic spirit in the world. There is evil in the world, and it is a personified evil. If you've never read C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, I highly commend it to you. You know, some people say, I've tried to read C.S. Lewis, and I find him very difficult. Most of the things that are worth reading in life are difficult. I'm just going to tell you that. So I would encourage you, if you've never read The Screwtape Letters, to go through. Lewis said of all the books that he wrote, and The Screwtape Letters is not my favorite by C.S. Lewis, but Lewis said of all the books that he wrote, it was the most difficult. Because he had to try and imagine how the devil would act and think. And I will say, the book is very enlightening and it's very provocative. And he said, we shouldn't think that the devil is going to act or operate in precisely the same way in every successive century. 
He said he's been around for a very long time. What's the old expression, generals always fight the last war? Well, the devil doesn't fight the last war. He's been around for so long, he knows exactly how to operate in such a way as to take people up. And Paul is very clear, not here, but elsewhere, particularly in his epistle to the Ephesians, that we are to be prepared for spiritual battles. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. Therefore, he says, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to take your stand against the devil and his evil schemes. So we need to recognize that as Christians, there is a devil, and he operates in different ways in different centuries. And Lewis says that in our age, as a result of the Enlightenment, because we don't tend to believe in supernatural things, we believe only in the age of science, only those things that we can see and verify. As a result, he said, the devil operates in a clandestine manner. And any time we see evil in the world, rather than giving credit where credit is due, namely to the enemy, we chalk it up to other things, to mental illness or whatever it may be. And as a consequence, he says, the devil operates clandestine in a very destructive way. Well, at the very least, there was this girl possessed of the spirit of Pythona, an evil spirit, a demon. And we're told that she was a slave girl. Slavery, incidentally, was part and parcel of the ancient world. Nearly half of the population in the first century was enslaved to the other half of the population. So slavery is not a 19th century American phenomenon. It is something that existed throughout much of history as very unfortunate. Well, this girl made a great deal of money, we're told, by her fortune-telling. So whatever this demon did, it evidently was pretty successful. And we're told in verse 17, she followed Paul and us. There's the us. This is Luke, of course. Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. I think it's interesting, isn't it? That Paul comes into this region, the first person that is converted is a woman. There are many people we're going to discover that didn't believe in Paul, didn't even know what he was all about. But the first person who recognizes Paul, recognizes what he's about, is a demon-possessed girl. And what I find particularly interesting is that everything that this demon-possessed girl was saying was true, wasn't it? And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Wasn't that true? Weren't Paul and Silas and Timothy... Weren't they, in fact, servants of the Most High God? And hadn't they come into Europe for the express purpose of telling people how to be saved? We see this over and over again, incidentally, in the Scriptures. You see in the Gospels in particular, when it comes to Jesus, that the very first beings, the very first creatures, to recognize Jesus for who He really is. You know how John's Gospel begins, He came to that which was His own, but His own received them not. The very people who should have recognized Jesus when he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies should have been what? His own people, and in particular, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet we're told they were the ones who refused or didn't recognize Jesus. And yet, over and over again in the Gospels, the one who always recognized Jesus 
The disciples were slow on the uptake sometimes. But the very first creatures to recognize Jesus almost instantly when they encountered him were what? Demons. We see that over and over again. Let's just take a look at some of these. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. beginning at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And isn't it interesting? Jesus is there teaching in the synagogue. Nobody necessarily recognizes him for who he is, even though the very scriptures that they were teaching, Jesus was the fulfillment of them, and yet they didn't recognize it. But this man with an unclean spirit, the spirit recognized Jesus. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8 for just a moment. We'll see the same thing. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And when they came to the other side, that is the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the lake, to the country of the Gadareans, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, I cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, I think this is interesting, they begged him to leave their region. Well, part of the reason was he was destroying the economy. You're going to see this again and again in Mark and in Luke. Over and over again, the first people to recognize Jesus are people who are possessed of demons. Now that's significant for any number of reasons. It may be significant because it tells us that the demons were under some sort of divine compulsion that they recognized Jesus. But it also gives us some insight into what true faith is, my friends. True faith is not simply believing that God exists. James says, you believe that God exists? He says, good. He says, even the devil believes that God exists. And we see that over and over again in the Gospels, where it's the demons who recognize Jesus. This girl recognized Paul and Silas as servants of what? the Most High God who had come to show them the way to be saved. 
Some people think that all you need to do is to believe that there is a God, even maybe believe that Jesus Christ is God, and that's enough for a person to be saved. James says it is not. True faith, biblical faith, is not simply believing in something, it's believing on. The Greek word for faith is pistis. It means trust. It means you are counting on, relying on. I think I probably told you the story of Blondin, the famous acrobat in the early part of the 20th century. Blondin was a famous acrobat who was known for his feats of acrobatics at Niagara Falls, uh, across the Horseshoe Falls. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Well, if you've been there, you've, you've seen the Horseshoe Falls. They are magnificent. It's a little commercialized today, but the, the falls are well worth seeing, well worth taking a trip to see. But at any rate, he would do these great feats. He had a tightrope strung across the Niagara Falls, the Horseshoe Falls, the Canadian Falls, and he would go out there, walk across there from one side and walk back. On one occasion, he went out and he actually stood there on the tightrope above that huge chasm and he cooked an omelet. But his greatest feat, his greatest feat, was when he decided to carry one of his assistants on his shoulders across from one side to the other and back again. And once he had done it, I mean, the crowd went wild. Everybody was cheering and clapping. And there was one man right down in front who was cheering and clapping louder than anybody else. And Blondin went up to that man and he said, Sir, do you believe I could do that with you? And the man said, I sure do. I just saw you do it. Blondin said, Well, then climb up on my back. And the man said, Not on your life. <laughs> now, there you see the difference between true faith, don't you? He believed in Blondin, but he was not about to believe on Blondin. James says the demons believe in God. They believe that he exists. And they have ultimately have to bow the knee to him, but they do not bow the knee willingly. They do that because they are under some sort of divine compulsion. Well, we're told that the girl kept this up for many days. And uh, Paul became, I love this text, greatly annoyed. Now, what's interesting is that Paul kept it up. She kept it up for many days, and Paul ignored it. You have to ask yourself, why did he ignore it to begin with? Well, probably annoyed it because he knew that if he dealt with this girl, it could very possibly, perhaps he could see what was going to happen in Philippi. And he realized that it was going to cause trouble, and what he wanted to do was to spend more time preaching the gospel, teaching the people, establishing a Christian presence. But eventually, we're told, he could put up with it no longer, and he turned around, and he rebuked the spirit, and that very hour, it came out of her. Now, you might ask the question, well, why did he rebuke the spirit? I mean, the spirit was testifying to the truth, and for all they knew, the people could have taken this seriously. I mean, this, they believed that this girl was possessed of this demon. She could foretell the future. And here was this demon. Perhaps they believed that it was the god Apollo and testifying to the true god, the most high god. 
Those people in that day believed that there were many gods, and some were higher ranking than others. And so you might go so far as to say, well, here's Apollo bearing witness to the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's wrong with that, Paul? Well, let's be honest. If you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed girl is probably not what you're looking for. And so Paul became greatly annoyed, turned and said, not to the girl, incidentally, but to the spirit. I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But as we've said before, no good deed goes unpunished, does it? Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is one of three times that Paul was beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What was the problem? Well, the problem, of course, was not simply that Paul had cast a demon out of a poor girl. The problem, of course, was that Paul had done something that had upset the economy. You know, most people don't pay much mind to the Christian gospel. They don't care if you go out and preach the Christian gospel so long as it doesn't interfere with their lives. But if it begins to make changes in the community that some people don't like, I know one young woman whose father didn't care who she married, didn't even care that she married a clergyman, as long as she didn't change, as long as she continued to be fun. Well, here's Paul. He casts this demon out of this girl. You would have thought that that would have been a compassionate thing, that people would have been happy, but we're told her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, and they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the marketplace and before the rulers. We're going to see something very similar happen just a couple of chapters, really three chapters later, in this same book. And it happens at Ephesus, where Paul preaches the gospel, and he preaches the gospel with such power and conviction that people begin to turn away from their idolatry. Remember, this was the ancient world. They worshipped all kinds of false deities, and they had idols and temples, etc., and one of the great idols of the ancient world, one of the great temples of the ancient world, was to Diana, the goddess of the hunt, or Artemis, as she was sometimes referred to. And there in Ephesus, there was a whole guild of silversmiths who made a great deal of money by making little images of this horrible, grotesque, multi-breasted figure of Artemis. And the people would take these home and they would serve as talismans or little places of private worship in their homes. And when Paul began to preach the gospel, what happened? People began to recognize the error of their ways. They began to forsake that paganism. They stopped buying these silver images and the silversmiths, what? Lost their business and they became angry. 
And we're going to see they brought charges against Paul. It's fine, Paul. Preach the gospel. It's all right for you to preach. It's all right for you to teach. But don't meddle. There's a difference, isn't there? You all know. Every preacher knows. When he stops talking, just preaching, and he starts meddling in the people's lives. Oh, tell me about grace and forgiveness and, and how I need to be saved, but don't tell me that I need to tithe. That's meddling. Well, that's what happened here. Paul was not just preaching and teaching. At this point, he was meddling in the lives, and in particular, in the business life of these owners. And the result was what? Well, they were very unhappy. And so they bring Paul and Silas before the rulers. And I want you to notice the charge that they brought. And when they brought them to the magistrate, they said what? They didn't say, these men cast a demon out of our slave girl, and now we've lost our ability to make money. They knew they weren't going to get any traction there, so what did they do? They brought a false charge. They said, these men are Jews. Now, at the beginning, I said, hold in the back of your mind that Paul was what? Visiting a city, and also hold in your mind the fact that this was what? A Roman city. Look at the charge that they bring against him. The charge they bring against Paul and his companion Silas is that these men are what? Jews. Translate, these men are from off. That's what they're saying. These men are from elsewhere. They are from another place. And to make matters worse, they are what? They are Jews. Anti-Semitism has been around for a very long time. These men are not only from other places, but they are Jews, and they are doing what? They are disturbing our city. You know how it is, Your Honor. These Jewish people, we know what they're like. You've heard about what goes on over there in Jerusalem. There are always uprisings. They're always speaking out against Caesar, and now they have come here. These two men, who are Jews, and they are doing what? advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans to practice. Now, was that true? It wasn't true at all. Paul hadn't advocated anything that was contrary to the law of Rome. But that was the charge that was brought against him. We have to recognize that when people can't get at you with the truth, if they're determined to get at you, they will get at you. Even if it's an untruth, a lie. And that was the case here. False accusations were brought against Paul and his companions. And we're told that Paul and Silas were seized. There was no trial, from what we can tell. They were never arraigned. They were simply brought in. They were stripped, and they were beaten with rods. That was a severe beating. I said Paul suffered this more than once. Sometimes the beatings were so intense that a weak person died as a consequence of the beating. It was a huge loss of blood. Make no mistake about it, the Romans were cruel People. That's one of the reasons they were able to keep peace in the ancient world. The Pax Romana was maintained by force of arms. And they invented ways of terrifying people. And that was the case with Paul. And we're told that Paul was taken, they were thrown into the prison, and they were locked in the stocks. And that's where we find them. I call this section the real Kairos prison ministry. 
Any of you familiar with Kairos? Uh, it's a wonderful ministry in the church to people who are imprisoned. And the scripture tells us that we should be concerned for the widowed, for the orphan, and for those who are in prison. Now, some people might say, well, those people in prison, they got what they deserve. Let's be honest. How many of us want to get what we deserve? Karl Barth, who is perhaps the most influential theologian, Protestant theologian of the 20th century, once said that the easiest congregation he ever preached to were a group of prisoners on death row. He said they were the easiest and the most receptive congregation he ever had. He said because nobody had to convince them that they were sinners in need of a Savior. It's oftentimes respectable, upstanding people who think that they are fine just the way, oh, they know theoretically that they're sinners, but they really don't see themselves as wretches. Now, they may sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, but I'm really a little wretch. The guy two pews in front of me, now he's a real wretch. He's the real deal. Sometimes that's the way we think. Well, at any rate, Kairos is a ministry to people in prison. There are two Greek words for time. You know, we say that when prisoners are in jail, they're doing time. Isn't that what we say? We're, they're serving time. The normal Greek word for time is chronos, from which we get our term chronology. And it means time on the clock. It's what we look at when we look at our wristwatch. It's second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. That's chronos, chronology. But there is another Greek word for time, and it's kairos. And it means God's time. It means God's time. So here are Paul and Silas thrown into jail to do chronos. But this is actually a kairos moment. I want you to notice the attitude of Paul and Silas. You have to put yourselves in their shoes for just a moment. They have been thrown into jail, falsely accused. Evidently, the accusations are so serious that the magistrates see fit to have them beaten, perhaps beaten within an inch of their lives, thrown into jail in stocks, you have no idea what's going to happen. You're not going to get a trial. The whole city is in an uproar against you. Chances are, the next morning, you're going to be dragged out and what? Put to death. That, that's what they're thinking is going to happen. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were in that kind of a situation, falsely accused, personally abused, physically beaten, thrown into stocks, not knowing what the future was going to hold, not knowing if tomorrow was going to be your last day on earth, what would you be doing in the cell? Praying. Crying. You'd be terrified, wouldn't you? It's interesting to note what Paul and Silas were doing. We're told that they were praying, yes, but singing hymns to God. They were praising the Lord. Most of us would probably be saying, Lord, why did you do this? I was just trying to be about your business, and here I am. This is what happens. But they weren't. 
They were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It was a Roman law that if a soldier deserted his post in time of battle, if you were told to hold the post to the last man, that meant you were expected forfeit your life for the sake of the empire. And if you were ordered to do that, and you ran in battle, and you were caught, you were executed immediately. And the same thing was true for prisoners and jailers. If a jailer lost his charges, he had to forfeit his life. His superiors were going to come in, and they were going to have him put to death. We'll see the same thing later on when Paul is shipwrecked. Paul pleads with his captors to let the people go. The ship is going to be dashed to pieces on the rocks. He said, let them all swim to shore. And we're told that the soldiers all drew their swords ready to kill the prisoners rather than let them possibly escape. So when this earthquake takes place and, and the lights go out and, and the doors fly open and off their hinges, the jailer rushes in. He sees that the doors are open in the dim light. He assumes what? The prisoners have all escaped. And so he pulls his sword. He's ready to kill himself. He'd rather kill himself than suffer the disgrace of having his superiors do it for him. What's fascinating is that we're told, Paul cried out from the darkness, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. You see, he had been listening. He had been listening, and no doubt mocking these two men, these two caged birds who continued to sing. In spite of their captivity, in spite of their wounds, in spite of their abuse, in spite of the bleak circumstances, they continued to sing. To sing meant to have confidence. It either meant to have confidence or it meant what? They were crazy. And that's the way he thought. They were crazy. But I said this was a Kairos moment. You know, sometimes we talk about circumstances. I want you to understand there are no circumstances. There are no accidents in the Christian life. And this man had enough wisdom to recognize that these men who had cast out a demon, who were singing in the midst of their persecution, when that earthquake took place, he knew what it was. It was divine intervention. And what made things all the more provocative and indeed frightening to him were the fact that these men were not afraid and didn't run away. They stood their ground. And so instead of Paul and Silas being afraid, who's afraid? Jailer's afraid. And he comes in, and he falls down before Paul and Silas, and he asks what I call the most direct question in all of Scripture. It's the question that every human being asks at one point or another in their life, and that question is, what must I do to be saved? Everybody wants to be saved. Now, you may not think of it in terms of going to heaven when you die. You may not think of it in terms of going to be with the Lord, but what you're really asking is, what do I have to do to be content in my life? 
For this man, it probably meant, what do I have to do to be safe? Because I recognize I'm in trouble. But that's the question we're all asking, isn't it? What do I have to do? What must I do to be saved? And I think it's to Paul's eternal credit that to this very direct question, he gives a very direct answer. You know, at that point, Paul could have just said, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Everything I've been through, let me tell you, you ought to be afraid. i got a few things that you need to hear right here and right now, so sit down, buddy. But he doesn't do that, does he? The man said, what must I do to be saved? He's trembling. And Paul doesn't say, well, I recommend that you join the church. He doesn't say, I recommend that you reform your life. He doesn't say, I recommend that you go and get baptized or you go and get confirmed. What does he say? He said, you want to know what you need in order to be saved? You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. I think that's absolutely marvelous that Paul did not beat around the bush. He was asked a direct question, and he gave a direct answer. What must I do to be saved? You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And I don't think it's any mistake that this happens at this point in the story. After we've already seen a demon who believed in Jesus. But now Paul's telling him he's got to believe on Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, he's saying, You'll be saved, you and your whole household. You want to know what you need to do to be safe? You need to flee to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the 19th century, great Baptist preacher in London, delivered a sermon on this text, and he drew a parallel between what Paul was telling the jailer and the old cities of refuge in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel ended their wanderings in the wilderness 40 years and entered the land of Canaan, they were given strict instructions to establish cities throughout the land, which were known as cities of refuge. They were places where a person who had accidentally killed another person, what we would call manslaughter, not murder in the first degree, not murder of forethought, but rather accidental death. You back over somebody in the driveway. It's an accidental thing, God forbid. Or you're working on your roof and a hammer falls off and hits somebody as they're passing down below and you kill them. In the ancient world, the family of the deceased had the right to extract vengeance. It was called lex talonis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But as a sign of God's grace and God's mercy, these cities of refuge would be established throughout the land. And if you were accused of manslaughter and the deceased family is pursuing you, you could flee to one of these ancient cities of refuge and they could not touch you there. You were preserved. Remember that old scene with Charles Lawton and Marine O'Hara in the Hunchback of Notre Dame? where he comes down and he rescues her and he flies up on his rope up there to the door of Notre Dame and he clings to the door knocker and says what? Sanctuary! Sanctuary! That's what these cities of refuge were designed to be. Sanctuary. 
And what's interesting is the law made it very clear you were to keep the roads open to the cities of refuge. If you went through a rainy season or through a storm, you had to go out and make sure that all impediments were removed. If a bridge had broken down, you had to rebuild that bridge so that a person in danger could flee without impediment to the city of refuge. Spurgeon said that is what Paul was saying to this jailer. He said, yes, you're in trouble. Yes, you are guilty. But there is a city of refuge that if you flee to it, you will be saved. And that city of refuge is what? That city of refuge is Jesus Christ. Do you recognize, every single one of you, that you're in danger? Imagine, for a moment, the worst monster you can imagine. I'm not talking about a Frankenstein or a Dracula or the Wolfman. I'm talking about a true human being that you think is just an evil and wicked person. Now, you may think about Adolf Hitler. I'm, I'm challenging you to think a little closer to home. And ask yourself this question, am I better than that person? Because the Bible is very clear, whatever evil dwelt in that individual, it dwells within us. And given the right circumstances, the right conditions, it could also manifest itself in our lives. We are all in danger. We are all condemned. But there is a place we can flee place of safety. And God has removed all the impediments. <laughs> it's interesting that this man asks, what must I do? That's what we all want to know, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? And the answer is, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has removed all the impediments himself by his death upon the cross. All the broken barriers that would prevent you from fleeing to God has shored up and rebuilt by His cross. He is your city of refuge. And you can flee to Him and be safe. Let me ask you a question. Have you fled to Jesus Christ today? Have you fled to that city of refuge? Do you recognize your need to be saved? Well, it's interesting to note that the jailer recognized this, and he brought Paul and Silas out. He dressed their wounds. See, there was good works involved, but the good works came what? After the salvation. There's a place for good works in the Christian life, but you can't earn your salvation. The good works are the fruit, the result of salvation. And he dressed Paul's wounds, a sign that he was sorry, and we're told that he and his whole household were baptized. I'm going to say one other word here before I let you go today, and that is about baptism. We use the language of regeneration in the baptismal service. And those who are here cleansed from sin and what? Born again. But I want you to understand, Paul makes it very clear here, nobody is saved by any work. Nobody is saved by virtue of the fact that they've been baptized. If that were the case, if it were as simple as that, it would be the responsibility of the clergy to line you all up and simply hose you down. <laughs> and that would be enough, wouldn't it? That'd be sufficient. I baptize you in the name 
baptism, and you see this in the New Testament, and I would argue you see it in the prayer book as well. Sometimes that language can be a little confusing. Baptism is always a response to faith. Not necessarily the means to it. Every time you see a baptism take place in the New Testament, it's always in response to faith. This man believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he was baptized. He and his whole household, presumably children and slaves as well. We saw the same thing, didn't we, with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the deacon came along and, and, and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, no, I don't. And he said, well, would you like me to explain it to you? And he said, yes. And he said, beginning with that very passage, he explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the man, having believed the gospel, then saw some water and said, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Baptism is a response to faith. And as I said, you even see that in the prayer book. Take your prayer book sometime and look at page 301 in the prayer book. That's the baptismal service. And it's called the presentation and the examination of what? The candidates. Now, who are the candidates, generally? Babies. So this is the presentation, but also the examination of the candidates. Now, we know the baby's presented, but we go through a whole series of questions. How many of those do you think that three-month-old is going to be able to answer? We don't examine the baby. We examine who? The parents and the godparents. And it's on the basis of their faith. You turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior. Will you follow him as your Lord? Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? It's on the basis of their faith that we baptize that infant. Now that's not to say that there doesn't have to come a time where that child takes responsibility for themselves. Of course, there has to come an age of accountability, and that's what we call confirmation. But what I want you to notice is that it's always a response to faith, not necessarily a means to it. We are not involved in magic, my friends. What the church is involved in is something so much bigger than that. And this man believed, and he was baptized, and his whole household. Now, does that mean the whole household was saved? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that on the basis of this man's faith, perhaps this was the net by which God would pull the rest of the family into his saving grace. We oftentimes see that to be the case, that God saves one person in the family and it becomes the means by which he saves others as well. That is just a wonderful story, isn't it? Because it tells us that God is in control. Sometimes situations can, situations can look so bleak, so dark. Sometimes we're, we're trying to be faithful, and the only thing that happens is we're falsely accused, we're persecuted, we're beaten, and we're thrown into a dark, locked cage. But the Christian is a caged bird that can sing. The caged bird can sing. Because why? Because Paul knew the story was already done. And it's sometimes in our singing, in those darkened places, that we actually bear the greatest witness to Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to show others how they can flee to that city of refuge and be saved.
Philippi is one of my favorite places to visit. Uh, many of you have asked, are we going to the Holy Land again? Because Penn Haygood did such an, and Elizabeth did such a great job the other night at the ECW dinner. I've got, said, uh, wrote to Penn last night, he said, you ladies did such a good job that I've got a problem. Every man in the parish wants to come to the ECW dinners now. And uh, the entire Inspire group told me yesterday that they wanted me to lead another trip to the Holy Land before they all die. So I, I'm going to have to go back to the Holy Land. But probably before the Holy Land, we're going to go on the journeys of St. Paul. That's my hope. And one of the places we love to go is to Ephesus. And let me tell you something. The remnants of that jail are still there. You can stand there before that very place where Paul and Silas were imprisoned where the caged birds sang out the praise of the Most High God. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul, for Silas, for their willingness to suffer indignity for the sake of the gospel. But it became the means by which they were able to proclaim the very message that they had come to bear witness to. And here was this jailer, a man who had been their persecutor, who became a convert to the faith. Lord, you always seek and save the least, the last, the most unlikely. The man from Macedonia turned out to be a woman. The first of the converts, and the second of the converts was a demon-possessed girl, and the third of the converts appears to be a Roman jailer. Lord, help us to see ourselves not as upright, upstanding people, but as broken, fallen, wicked people. But people who realize that a place of refuge has been provided for us. Grant us the grace to cast off everything and to run with all our might to Jesus to be safe. It's in his name we pray. Amen.